Welcome to the PE Live Energy Oracles podcast. I'm Paul Hicking, Editor-in-Chief at Petroleum Economist, and I'm joined by consultant and all-round energy expert, Dr. Anas Alhaji, who runs Energy Outlook Advisors and Altaka. Hi, Anas. I would like to start with OPEC and the recent comments at the OPEC seminar in Vienna and recent speculation around OPEC acquiring new members. First off, how realistic is that OPEC will gain new members and what sort of impact would it have? Is bigger necessarily better? It is not realistic. I think we have to separate two pieces of news here. We have an issue with Guyana, as you recall, because the Wall Street Journal published an article saying that OPEC is trying to invite Guyana and trying to be nice to them. And it seems that the vice president of Guyana read the Wall Street Journal and he went public and he said, we have no interest. That forced OPEC to issue a press release saying that we never invited Guyana. So what happened is, it seems that they did invite the Minister of Natural Resources to the OPEC seminar and to speak at OPEC seminar. And a journalist basically misunderstood that as an invitation to Guyana. And then they wrote the story, and then the vice president reacted, and then OPEC reacted to that. But this talk about other countries surfaced again during the seminar about other countries. And some of those countries basically includes Brazil, include Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan already said we are not interested. And what's common between those countries is that The whole oil industry in those countries started by international oil companies through some sort of concessions, profit-sharing contracts. That does not fit with OPEC because in OPEC, you need the state to be dominant. And therefore, you see that, especially older OPEC members, in all their contracts, there is a clause basically to tell the companies, you have to cut production when we tell you to cut to buy by OPEC quota. Well, Guyana, Brazil, and Azerbaijan, they don't have that. And therefore, why join while they cannot do anything? So it does not make any sense at all. The other two countries are Norway and the United States. Norway will never join because by definition, it has to be a developing country, and Norway is not. For the United States, as you know, mostly is privately owned. And because of the antitrust laws, those companies cannot even join. And historically, I think it was in the middle 80s when a group of representatives of Louisiana state oil industry went to OPEC, basically. It was completely an official visit on a side of a meeting, but legally, they cannot make it official and they cannot negotiate. So it's a complete waste of time. Yeah, I think I remember when during COVID, when everyone got around the table around the 10 million barrels a day cut and there was a lot more sort of willing, if you like. And even then, there was reluctance for some for the other wider members to start joining. I think if they were going to probably join, it was probably going to be then. What do you see as the relationship between OPEC and OPEC Plus? The term of OPEC Plus is, is that informal alliance. What do you see as the advantages and disadvantages of if you are an NOC or have an NOC? What are the advantages and disadvantages of being part of the formal OPEC group? As you recall, we had at the end of 2014, it was apparent that prices were going to decline and we had an oil surplus. And it was apparent that OPEC members are not agreeing on a cut. At the same time, the Saudi view was if you guys are not going to, even if you guys agree on a cut, we need non OPEC members 
to participate because the share of OPEC shrank in the market after Russia, Norway, and the United States and Brazil increased their production substantially. So they wanted other members to contribute. By 2016, it was very clear that OPEC as a group that influenced the market lost its influence completely. And I remember writing an article at that time about the end of OPEC. Some people criticized it saying, you know, this is premature, OPEC still there. They couldn't understand the difference between OPEC and influence versus OPEC, the building, OPEC, the research center, OPEC that has a secretary general and employees. Yes, we do have still there. But in terms of influence, it did end years ago. And it was very clear that OPEC has to evolve in one way or the other. And the question is, evolve in which way? If you want to look at it in terms of influence, they did it the wrong way because they thought just expanding membership is enough. Expanding membership, basically, is just more headache. If you couldn't even manage 13 members, how are you going to manage 23? So there were other issues that they need to deal with in terms of restructuring OPEC completely, restructuring the vision, restructuring the whole organization in a way where it is more influential. To give you an example, OPEC until today, you have 13 members, a member that produce like 200,000 barrels a day to 1 million, and a member that produces 10 million. But they have the same vote. It's one country, one vote, regardless of the size of the production. That does not make sense in such organizations. The weight has to go to the production, not to the country. So at least we have to look at it from that way. The other issue is we have countries that have refining capacity, others don't. We have countries that are going to sell at any price, others don't. And therefore, there should be some sort of mechanism for storage and refining among themselves so they can maintain production at the levels they want. Why we are saying this? Because if you go back to 1959, before OPEC was established, and the two founders whom I call philosophers, Abdullah Tariq of Saudi Arabia and Alfonso Perez of Venezuela, both of them are incredible men. And they are truly philosophers. If you read about them, you read what they wrote, what they said, they are not only energy ministers or oil ministers. They are way more than that. Now, we know that OPEC was established in the middle of September 1960. The main announcements for OPEC was made in May 1960 in Taylor, Texas, in front of the independent oil producers in the United States who cheered them up, and they literally treated them like royalties. And what they said in their speeches in Taylor, Texas, was amazing, because what they said was, here is what we want. We want to end the dependence on oil revenues in those countries. We're talking about OPEC here. They said, we want to end the dependence. But to end the dependence, we need to diversify the economy. To diversify the economy, we need money. And to get the money, we have to sell the oil. To sell the oil, we want to get an ultimate price for that, the best price. And how to get that best price? is to always, and this word always is very important here, to always match supply to demand. Always, which means that they will fluctuate supply at any month, at any week, basically, to match demand. 
but OPEC never done that until 2020. So the best years of OPEC since 1960 are 2021 and 2022 when they had those monthly meetings and they always adjusted supply to demand. That matched the original OPEC widget of matching supply to demand. And what happened? It worked fine until they stopped those meetings in 2023. And we've seen what happened. Prices declined and a lot of confusion in the market. I think the Saudis realized this point. They come back in March and say, okay, know that several OPEC members are not going to agree with me on a cut. But what I will do is I will go for a voluntary cut and it's going to be announced monthly in lieu of those monthly meetings because they knew they need to mass supply to demand all the time. The only problem we have with them right now, and we wrote that in our newsletter recently and our daily report today, the only problem is those cuts do not match the OPEC monthly report forecast because OPEC still the most optimistic organization out there on oil demand in 2023. They still think that the demand is very strong. Well, if it is strong, then why the cuts? So something got to give. Do you think there's a disconnect then between the research body and some of the key decision makers within the OPEC group? Well, OPEC as an organization by design does not have any power. Since 1960, it does not have any power, which means that the secretary of OPEC cannot go to a country and tell them, oh, you need to cut or else. The secretary general does not have that power. The decision is in the hand of the member, period. And OPEC, unlike the previous organizations that controlled the oil market, because if you want to go back 120 years and study the market, as you recall, we had John Rockefeller, Standard Oil, that controlled 90% of the market in the United States with tremendous power, tremendous power. And if anyone basically kind of tried to stand up for Standard, they used several tactics basically either to crush them or buy them. Then we have the Supreme Court decided to break up Standard into about three, and I think that was in 1911, to 35 companies, which include ExxonMobil, Chevron, etc. When they decided to break it up, we have a completely free market out of control and everything collapsed. And prices were very low, wastage was very high, the environmental damage was very high, the damage to the wells was kind of unbelievable. We have all kinds of inefficiencies, etc., to the extent that the federal government and the state governments felt that we need to organize this market. So they created the commissions or in Texas, they assigned the oil and gas industry to the existing Texas Railroad Commission and they became in control. So they have the legal control, yet with the legal control, they couldn't control the fields. So what the governor of Texas and Oklahoma did, they literally used the armed National Guard to invade the privately held fields and control them by force. Well, OPEC does not have this power. The only power we've seen historically is three events. When the Saudis flooded the market, so they became the policemen or the National Guard in this case in the mid-80s. And we've seen it in 2015. We've seen it in March 2020 when they had the dispute with Russia. But that's independent of OPEC. That's a Saudi decision, has nothing to do with OPEC. So OPEC by design does not have any power like the Texas Railroad Commission 
or later on the Seven Sisters who controlled the world oil market, simply because the Seven Sisters controlled the industry vertically and horizontally. Almost 90% of the world was under their control. Well, OPEC does not have that power because they control only crude. Even condensates are not included in it. They have no control over downstream. So by design, OPEC does not have that control. And that's why I said earlier, it needs to be revamped and changed. Yes, it's a good point. In that sense, you're seeing also, we're seeing this kind of shift, like while the OPEC has been talking up a bigger group, actually, in many respects, it's actually getting narrower, isn't it? Like the power within OPEC is moving and shifting towards the Gulf countries, in particular, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I guess Saudi Arabia has always had that power, and but the UAE as well as the two key countries with significant spare capacity. And as other members have capacity constraints, you could potentially see these this growth within OPEC itself of you know even more disproportionate amount of balance of power shifting to the Gulf countries. Do you think that may change how it operates and how it can operate? You know, if it's a little bit more two speed or a bit more streamlined in that sense. Historically, if you look at the academic literature of OPEC, they divided OPEC into two or three groups. And in both of them, in both types of studies, there is something called the core, the core of OPEC. And the core of OPEC was always Saudi Arabia and the Gulf allies. However, the Gulf allies, basically, their role differ from time to time. But what we've seen in recent years is the strongest. So in a sense, we are seeing, especially UAE and Kuwait, and now to some extent Iraq, basically, cooperating with Saudi Arabia. That's not the case historically all the time. We have periods, basically, where there was a dispute between them. UAE was cheating on the quota all the time, etc. But what we've seen since 2020, and this is what's scary about OPEC right now, is that personalities matter. And that plays a big role. Because when we talk about personalities, I seriously think if it wasn't for the two Saudi ministers, the first one was Khaled al-Falih, who literally brought Russia on board. The prince was, Prince Abdelaziz bin Salman, was with him at that time. He was at the ministry and later on the prince. So personalities matter, which means that if we have change in personalities, we are going to see change in OPEC too. Yeah, it's true. I'd like to move on the question now to something you've been talking about for some time and it's something that's been muted in the media around question marks over the petrodollar, about the strength of the US dollar in the oil trade and the fact that some small trades are now being done in yuan and the rise of the BRICS has been talked about. What's your take on all this and how do you see international oil trade going forward? We have a serious problem with the media and a group of analysts and people on social media, mostly they trade with gold, who are promoting those rumors. And all they need just a rumor basically to start this. And we have two major rumors historically. One of them came from Asia Times about the UN gold-backed oil contracts in China which was a lie, was not correct. And even the journalist admitted that. Yet that rumor is still alive until today, although this has been several years ago. Then we have another article by the Wall Street Journal about the UN, which was absolutely incorrect, regardless of the sources. So I'm not accusing the journalist of not hearing it. It just they did not vet the sources very well. All of these stories basically are rumors. 
oil is priced in dollar. The idea that there is this secret agreement between the United States and Saudi Arabia to use the dollar to price oil, there is no single hard proof on this. We really need to see that. And the idea that this is mentioned in so many books and magazines, this is just circular information, which means that they are just repeating each other. The idea that it's widespread idea and it's written in magazines and books, where is the source? We really need the source. I think this is what happened has nothing to do with the agreement to use the dollar. And I'll be happy to explain it if we have time. But the idea here is oil is priced in dollar. And we have to distinguish between pricing in dollar and getting revenues in non-dollar. These are two different things. Oil today is priced in dollar. Historically, in the last 50 years, more than that, it's been priced in dollar. And it will remain priced in dollar, especially that the United States is the largest oil producer in the world. It's becoming one of the largest exporters of oil in the world. And the two major oil contracts, WTI and Brent, are both in the West. They are not in the East. And Dubai, basically, if you want to talk about Dubai and Oman, they are dollar denominated too. And then someone might say, well, look, we have on Shanghai Exchange, oil is traded for yuan, is priced in yuan. Well, that's absolutely correct. But when you do the analysis, you find out the following, that the oil priced in yuan at Shanghai Exchange is a mirror image of what happens in Dubai after you adjust for the geographic location and the crude quality. It's exactly the same, which means that it is priced in dollar no matter what. And there is no substitute. Why? Because we need three conditions to price oil in a currency. And the first one is we need massive liquidity. Only the dollar have that, historically. And you need a currency that is relatively stable. That's first the dollar. Again, relatively here is an important word. And the third one is widely accepted. For God's sake, the news this morning that Russia are taking dollars, US dollars, from Indian oil companies for the oil they are exporting to India. So all of those who are talking about this new BRICS currency and all that stuff is a complete nonsense. However, countries can accept other currencies. So pricing is one thing, getting the revenues in other currencies is one thing. And here I would like to point out for the listeners that the stories about Saddam Hussein pricing Iraqi oil in non-dollar, in euro, is absolutely incorrect. And Gaddafi is pricing Libyan oil in non-dollar is absolutely incorrect. Both of them, they asked to get their revenues in euros. That's a different story, a completely different story. And it makes perfect sense because if you have US imposed sanctions and you cannot buy from the United States, what do you need with the dollar? The euro is better for you. The last point here is, If you look at all the data around the world right now, the dollar is still dominant in every aspect. Yes, it lost some market share, but losing market share is one thing and dominance is another. And the dollar remains dominant. Yeah, so it could happen at some point in the future, but we're nowhere near that stage right now. Well, I would like to make this statement right now because this is, I think, what people are missing. If you study the dominant currencies throughout history, they are always tied to the power of the empire. When the empire collapses or shrink, then its currency and its dominance shrinks. 
So it has nothing to do with existence of the UN right now or Russia using the UN. The dollar would collapse if we have a collapse of the American empire. End of story. I'd also like to turn to US shale, a bit like OPEC in various times. It's been written off. It may not come back in the same way as its boom period. What's your take on shale, given that the changing structure from independence to majors and the fact that it's this quality issue with shale, which is quite big, it's a light, sweet crude. What's your take on how on the future of shale? We have a couple of issues here. First of all, I don't think Saudi Arabia or OPEC care about shale growth anymore for several reasons. And related to that, the Saudis in particular benefited greatly from shale on several fronts. And one of them is that without shale, the demand would have been for the OPEC oil would have been way higher and the political and economic pressure would have been way, way high on the Saudis and others. So one of the benefits of the shale, it reduced the pressure, especially the political pressure on OPEC and the Saudis. But the Saudis benefited financially because most of those VLCCs that are transporting shale to the rest of the world, especially Asia, are owned by Saudi Arabia. And this is like guaranteed money. It's not like the shale investors who, where the risk is very high. So the, shipping the oil basically from the United States to Asia on Saudi tankers is a guaranteed money, and they did benefit from that greatly. So to answer your question, shale is going to grow, and I believe it will continue growing. And I think a lot of people misunderstand shale. But the question becomes, okay, if it is going to grow, what is the crude quality? Because the crude quality became an important issue. After the recovery from COVID in 2020, almost all the increase in shale was condensates and NGLs, no crude. All of it with API above 45, which is 50, sometimes even up to 70. So do we count that as crude in this case? No, it's not crude. But the EIA counts that as crude anyway because of Historically, there was a problem with the system, and they defined NGLs as the liquids that come from natural gas wells. But now NGLs are coming from oil wells, and they don't know where to put them. So they added them to liquid. They added them to crude anyway, and that's why we have exaggeration. And probably this is part of the problems with the adjustment numbers in the weekly figures from the EIA. Now, we have a history here where we we're able to make the conclusion that when companies go to a new area or go to a new zone and they discover that it is really gazier than what they expected and it has more gas and more NGLs, they got stuck. They have to produce that or end up with what we call the developed and completed wells, which we use the acronym DOCS for it. So companies that face this problem they would prefer not to complete and go for another area. And what we saw that because companies went to the western flank of the Permian in New Mexico, they found out that the area is gazier than what they expected. And we ended up with a lot of gas. And that's why this is part of the reason why natural gas prices collapsed. We have a lot of gas coming from oil plays, not from gas plays, and mostly from the Permian. And we ended up with a lot of NGLs. And as you know, NGLs, the price of NGLs is a fraction of the oil price. So history tells us when companies face this problem, immediately they stop and they change the region 
they change the area or change the zone to something with a lower API. So for the last two months, we've been noticing that, that the API with 45 or lower is increasing while the API above 45 is decreasing. So companies are adjusting. But because of the high decline rates, they have to look for newer areas and zones, and they may encounter, again, gazier areas. So this is kind of a cycle that we are going to go through every time they expand. So while we believe that the production is going to increase, the quality becomes very important here. That's why we have the hashtag crude quality matters. Related to this are two things. The first one is when those wells after like three, four, five years, yeah, the decline is very steep. And then they are left with a tail. That tail produces, let's say, 20 to 30 barrels a day. But the decline rate here becomes like really flat. And because we drilled probably hundreds of thousands of wells, we have right now hundreds of thousands of wells that are producing about 20 to 30 barrels a day. And people are forgetting that. This is a massive amount of oil there, aside from the drilling activities. It has nothing to do with drilling activities. So yes, we have improvement in technology, we have efficiency, we have management efficiency, et cetera, that increasing oil per well, but we still have this tail that's getting fatter every time we have older wells, and it will last for a long time. In addition, we are seeing some changes, and you alluded to this, this movement of the oil majors to shale that happened a few years ago, and it seems some of them are digging in. This is a serious problem because we are shifting from a long cycle to a short cycle. And that's really a big problem. We need the shift like what happened in Guyana. We need something to go offshore to other countries where we have major wells, long life, et cetera, et cetera. We don't want to end up with shifting the money from long cycle to a short cycle because that contributes to the energy crisis that we will have in the coming years. There's been a lot of talk around collapse in oil demand or peak oil demand or plateauing oil demand, the rise of EVs, the energy transition rhetoric. We've had the IEA with its coming out with all its key scenarios about and its policy scenarios potentially or what that may mean. We've had the Saudis come out and criticize the IEA's predictions and assumptions saying it's la-la land. What's your take on the assumptions around oil demand growth and this potential plateau? Yesterday, we published a report entitled Back to Earth, Reality of the Energy Transition. And Looking at that report, I'm going to show you some numbers to answer your question. If you look at the power sector around the world, for the world in general, that's the whole world, only 3% of electricity in the world is generated by oil. Only 3%. The dominant source of energy in power generation worldwide is coal, 35%. Natural gas, 23%. Nuclear is 9%, and hydro is 15%. We spent, since 2010 until today, the world spent more than $4 trillion, $4 trillion on renewable energy, and that's for solar and wind, does not include hydro. More than $4 trillion. Yet, the percentage of renewables in the power sector in the world is 14%. In the energy consumption picture as a whole, it's only 7%, half of that. 
So the idea here, only 3%, which means that out of the 100 million barrels demand, we have only 3 million of oil used. Again, we are talking about the peak oil demand here. So how much of it will be replaced over time? Well, probably we can replace only about a million out of that over the next 30 years. Only a million. The 2 million we cannot get rid of simply because it depends. There are oil producing countries that use oil because it's cheap for them. And we have so many islands that the only way they can get power is through oil because that's the only way you ship it to them. They cannot even justify, let's say, an LNG terminal or anything else. So only 1 million over a 30 year period. But if you look at Europe, for example, and again, I'm talking about electricity generation by fuel, and that's in 2022. Only 1%, only 1%, in fact, it's less than 1%, is generated by oil, which means that if Europe doubles, triples, quadruple renewable energy, it has no impact on oil. And despite all this spending on renewable energy, only 27% of electricity generated in Europe comes from renewable. Now you go, to the United States. In the United States, 0.5%, which means that it's not even 1% is generated from oil. The same story, even if the Biden administration double or triple renewable energy has no impact on oil. You look at China, almost zero oil. You look at India, almost zero oil. So the impact of renewable on oil demand is almost non-existent. It's very limited. We are left with EVs. And with EVs, we have a serious problem. The first problem is there is exaggeration by the reports that are issued by big organizations about not the number of EVs, about the impact of EVs on oil demand. And the reason why, because most of those guys are in the transportation sector and their knowledge of the oil sector is very limited. And they end up with those outrageous forecasts about the decline in oil demand. A couple of days ago, where I have one of my followers responding to me and saying, look, Tesla increased its production by 500,000 cars, and that must do something to demand. Well, the impact of 500,000 is really, really limited. It's not even a single well in the Gulf of Mexico. And if you look at the electric vehicle sales, and this is one of the issues where we criticize the media with, that we noticed recently and we are talking about really kind of respectable media sources. We are not talking about just a website. When the auto companies started reporting their quarterly results, the sales, they went into details on the sales and by car and by type and say it went up by, let's say, 3,000 cars and percentages, 2%, etc. I mean, it was beautiful, beautiful reporting. The problem is once they got into electric vehicles, they forgot the numbers completely, and they focused only on percentages. I say, well, the sales of this car went up by 275%. The sales of this car went up by 745%. But tell me the number. They don't mention the number. That's a complete bias. That's a problem. That violates the principles of journalism. I mean, Toyota published all the numbers. There is no problem with Toyota. The problem is with the media. Some media sources basically reported that the increase in sales of electric vehicles quarter over quarter was 745%. And you look at the number, and the number is like so, it's like less than 1,000. Okay. And I calculated that and found out the impact on the market is like 75 barrels a day. But you can see the bias by reporting just the percentages 
without reporting the numbers. They did that with Ford Lightning, the F-150. They reported the percentages. They did not report the numbers. Ford delivered about 900 trucks only in the second quarter. So we have a serious problem in terms of reporting and exaggeration because the percentages are telling people, look, everyone is buying electric vehicles, etc. And that's causing a lot of problem that we have cities and provinces around the world that switched to natural gas long ago, like 15 years ago. And I remember basically doing the reports on the impact of natural gas vehicles on the oil market. It is the same cities and provinces, they start switching to electric. And therefore, the impact is really on the demand for natural gas, not oil. Yet, it's been reported in those media sources and those consulting firms and those reports. It's been reported as a loss in oil demand, which does not make any sense. Either they know or they don't know. I know at least one of the main organizations that produces those reports, they know because I called them up. And I talked to the head of transportation, and he agreed, and he promised that he will make the change, and he did not. And they kept reporting until today, the impact on natural gas be reported as the impact on oil. So we have all kinds of biases in this case. The third point, and I know we are taking a lot of time on this, so I will end with that. The third point that we have a serious problem with the data on miles driven, because all the data we have today showing that for similar cars, for similar ICE cars, that internal combustion engine, people are driving less on the electric vehicle. And therefore, you drive less, the economics change. You need to drive a lot, basically, to have the economics of it on one side and to have environmental impact. And at the same time, probably you've seen our recent reports on the cost of insurance and accidents, which is going through the roof right now. And that's not being counted either. And the reason why, because those cars are heavier, and when they are involved in an accident, most likely it will have an impact on the battery. Most of the cost of the car is the battery. At the same time, we don't have, like the ICE cars, we don't have places to go to fix your car. You have to go back to the dealership. And based on the recent numbers that we've seen, the cost of repair is 25% higher than the regular cars. And the wait time, to repair the car is 14% higher. But the insurance in some cases is almost double the same car that runs on gasoline or diesel. And I think that insurance is going to increase substantially in the future as more cars, more electric cars on the road and more accidents happen. So we have still so many issues and therefore the impact on oil demand is highly exaggerated. Yeah, even you say that from a potential policy perspective, you know, the fact that these policies are being brought in to really get rid of the combustion engine and bring in electric vehicles. Do you think it could still change quite quickly if the technology improves, but we're just not there yet and it's exaggerated right now? Is that what you're saying? Well, let me put it differently because I think this will settle the whole argument. Tesla Model Y replaced Toyota Corolla as number one in terms of sales. So that tells you where we are going. We are replacing the most efficient, dependable car. While in reality, because of the energy transition, we should replace the SUVs, the big SUVs and trucks, not the most efficient car. And if you look at the data, we have a global shift from small cars 
to SUVs. And that's, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you for coming on and with some hard hitting and brutal honesty in some of these topics and cutting through some of the exaggerations and fabrications, shall we say, that's going on right now. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Energy Oracles. Please check out Petroleum Economist online for more insights and analysis, along with Hydro Economist, Carbon Economist, and Gulf Energy Infrastructure. Thanks for listening.